Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. It's time to get inside the Giants huddle. Huddle up, huddle up, huddle up. On Giants.com. Here we go, here we go. And the Giants mobile Get them in there, let's go. Part of the Giants podcast network. Welcome to the newest edition of the Giants Huddle Podcast. John Schmelk with you today from Pro Football Focus. Front of the program, the one and only Sam Monson. Sam, what's going on, man? Good to see you. Thanks. Yeah, I'm doing well. How about you? Doing great. Last time we spoke, dude, was at the NFL Combine before the Giants embarked on their offseason. We kind of talked about what they should do. You recently had an article up on PFF talking about each team's offseason and how you graded them. And give us the lowdown. What you think of the Giants offseason? Yeah, I think the Giants have had a really good offseason. Obviously, I think most people would uh, acknowledge that they overachieved last year, you know, relative to expectations and probably relative to how good the team actually was. So this was a big offseason to make sure that the team in 2023 can actually meet the the raised expectations that the last season will have inevitably brought. So you know, I think free agency and, and when you fold in the, the trade for Darren Waller into that kind of area, free agency, I think they added uh, a decent amount, a decent volume of veteran talent to to keep the, the overall talent level moving in the right direction. And I think their draft was was excellent. Um, you know, John Michael Schmitz in the second round was a player that was being mocked to them in the first round a lot, um, including by, you know, the official Giants Twitter account and, and those kinds of things. So to end up with him in the second round, getting another player that was really highly rated with that first round pick is, you know, a, a fantastic outcome. And there were a few teams that had that kind of dynamic at play. You know, they got a guy in the second that that was being matched to them a lot in the first round with pre-mock uh, drafts. And then Jalen Hyatt, I think, in the third round is a great talent. Like, a lot of those Tennessee guys, whether it was Jalen Hyatt, Hendon Hooker, there were a lot of questions because of that offense and how difficult it is to project it to what they're going to have to do at the NFL level. And a lot of them were kind of getting first round hype at various points in the offseason. And there's always sort of it's really difficult to make that kind of case coming from that offense. But in the third, you know, he's an absolute steal given the talent that he brings to the table and the speed and the things that we know he can do well. Yeah, even Tillman, I think, went a little bit later than a lot of people thought, too. So right. you're right. I think teams were a little bit reticent about that. And, and and we'll hit on the draft a little bit. I want to get back to Waller. Because to me, Sam, that really, and we'll get to Daniel Jones, if you're looking for offensive improvement this year, I think that's the trade that has to work out, right? You know, you need that number one option for the quarterback to throw the ball to. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a wide receiver. And Waller is now their number one weapon. You want to call him a tight end, a receiver, however you want to phrase it, it's fine. But Daniel Jones needed a guy that he could trust to get open against one-on-one -on -one coverage on every play, and that's who they have in Waller. And I think his health is going to be essential to determine whether or not the offense in Jones can kind of take that next step as a passing offense. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, in a way, you're right. His health is really important to how good this offense is going to be. Um, but 
they haven't paid an awful lot to make it happen. So right. they've insulated themselves from the prospect that it doesn't work out. And at least they're not on the hook for, you know, the, they or they haven't given up a ton in terms of trade capital. They're not on the hook for the, you know, a giant sum of, of money. The, the Raiders effectively just got rid of his salary. You know, it was a salary cap dump uh, to, to trade him away. So I think it's good business and a good risk to take whether or not it works out. And then the, the real impact is going to be whether he stays healthy or not. But if he does, Waller is up there with those top two or three tight ends in the NFL in terms of genuine game-changing talents. Guys, not nobody's at Travis Kelsey's level, I don't think, but the George Kittles, Darren Wallers, the Mark Andrews of the world, these are guys that can be that alpha target within an offense, even if they're not wide receivers. And then a wide receiver, Sam, they kind of threw numbers at the problem, right? I think they saw with the free agency market, and we talked about this at the Combine, right? The wide receiver free agency market stunk. And in the draft, uh, we talked about this too. I think, in my opinion, the top wide receiver this year maybe would have been the fifth or sixth wide receiver taken last year. So there wasn't a true number one in this wide receiver class. How do you think this is going to work at receiver with all their numbers? I mean, they have Wanda Robinson, Sterling Shepard, Paris Campbell, Jamison Crowder in the slot. Uh, bigger guy outside in Isaiah Hodgins. And you have the speed guys outside in Slayton and Hyatt, right? And I almost feel like, how many of these guys are even going to get 80% of the snaps? I almost feel like it's going to be kind of a rotation deal where they're trying to find answers at, at some of these spots and they hope that somebody emerges from just the large sheer number of players they've tried to throw at this problem. Yeah, and I think that was probably the only way of doing it. You're right. This was not a good offseason to be in desperate need of wide receiver help, whether it's free agency or the draft. So the only way of combating that is to target volume and see if you can create the problem or resolve the problem in the aggregate and hope that the collection of guys that you bring in is able to make those kinds of plays. Um, I also think it was important for them to diversify a little bit they had a lot of players that were of a similar type of skill set and were all sort of focused in this one area so let's bring in a few different types of receivers and again hope that we can try and create an amalgam of a receiving core that's going to be significantly better even if none of these guys is you know a true number one type superstar and i think there's always the potential that that move is still on the table you know deandre hopkins is still out there potentially for trade that Denver are almost certainly going to move a wide receiver at some point, um, given the ones that they have, the addition of guys like Marvin Mims in the draft as well. I think there are still moves that could be made, maybe not right now, maybe not in the offseason, but you know, into the season or even uh, into the future, if what they have is you know moving in the right direction but hasn't quite hit the level that they needed to at, at some point. Yeah, and I think, you know... And the reason this season is so important, Sam, in terms of the weapons especially, is kind of figuring out Daniel Jones. And, and we'll get there. I know Giant right. fans want to hear about that. But it also has to do with, with what's going up front. So I think as important as Waller is to, to what we're doing here this year, I think the other really important thing is you mentioned John Michael Schmitz. He has to step in and be fine. He doesn't have to be dominant, but he has to be fine. But I think the other guys, Evan Neal, right? And we had this conversation, me and you have spoken a lot on these podcasts, and we this is the same conversation we had about Andrew Thomas after his first year, right? Where it was a struggle. Right. He showed some progress late. I don't think we saw some of the late progress from Neal that we saw from Thomas when he was a rookie. But I think his progress and his improvement, at least to just to to, to get towards the average, would go a long way towards helping this offense. Because I know a lot of people worried about the inside of their line. And trust me, I get it. That was a problem, too. 
But right tackle, especially when you're facing Michael Parsons and Montez Sweat and all the guys the Eagles are going to throw at you and Demarcus Lawrence, you know, that's a real problem for an offense when you're playing six games against teams with really good pass rushes. Really is. Yeah. The improvement of Evan Neal is huge to, to the success of this offensive line. Yeah. The interior had a lot of work to do. I think John Michael Schmidt should go a long way towards helping that. Um, but if Evan Neal can take a step forward, then all you have is potentially one problem spot on the offensive line. You know, one of those guard spots, the other four positions should be fine and you can deal with that. And if if your one problem spot is going to be one of the guard spots, that's the best spot to have as a weak link as well. So if that was the way it worked, I think that would be fantastic for New York. But it's all contingent on Evan Neal taking that kind of step forward in year two. And you're right, it, it, it didn't look quite the same as it did with Andrew Thomas. And it didn't have quite the same excuse for Andrew Thomas as well. One of the, the key elements uh, around Thomas struggling early was they basically completely rebuilt his technique. You know, they changed his pass sets. They changed everything about how he was going to go about um, pass blocking. So it made sense that he was going to struggle early and and eventually come out of that and show the signs that, you know, once his technique is is where it needed to be and he sort of got used to all those changes, he was going to go back to being that dominant force we saw from him as a prospect. Evan Neal, I don't think, had that excuse. They, they didn't completely mess with his technique he just struggled you know and that again that doesn't mean that he's going to be that guy and he's going to be bad from start to finish but it means that we don't have this ready-made here was a problem we knew this was going to be a problem and you know it may it, we were going to have to suffer through that whatever happened neil is just going to have to come out of the other side of early struggles which can absolutely happen but needs to start happening now if it's going to yeah and look as you well know and i know you guys have done studies on this First of all, progress is never linear, right? Guys can be bad for a couple years, then take a huge jump. They can be bad for one year, take a huge jump. But generally speaking, offensive linemen, and I think the same can be said for defensive tackles too, it can sometimes take a year or two or three in the NFL for them to kind of hit where they're eventually going to get, right? I mean, I think there's a little bit of a long, longer long yep. learning curve at those spots, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, year three is talked about all the time as that kind of season that the young players start to take that big leap forward and i think in an offensive line in particular it's it's true it's it's maybe more true for offensive linemen than it is for any other position so we may still be a year away from seeing what we're really going to get with evan neal but you do need to see a significant jump in year two to even have the confidence that you can you know roll into year three with him as the starter um year one was rough for him uh I, some of the things you saw from tape i think are encouraging in terms of there's a lot to work with. It's just that people found his blocks very easy to shed. You know, he would get locked on, he would get in good position, and then would just get tossed to the side. For a guy as big, strong, and athletic as he is, that should be something that can be fixed. Um, but it does need to start, you know, happening sooner rather than later. All right. I want to dig into some details on Daniel Jones, but first, let me just get your overarching opinion on how the Giants handle that, uh, where they think they are with Jones and, and kind of where Jones is in his career arc. Yeah, I I was surprised and I wouldn't have gone the route that they went. I was surprised that they didn't use the franchise tag on him. And I, I think he's his career so far and where they are with him is is tailor made for a franchise tag. It's It's kind of what that exists for, which is. You know, we're not 100% sure that this guy is the long-term solution, but neither do we want to let him go. We want that one year to to figure it out. Um, but they, 
the problem with that obviously is it ties you up to a large amount of guaranteed money and, and salary cap year one and locks you into that that mode um they obviously value the flexibility that the franchise tag or that the, the the extension gave them as opposed to the franchise tag it also freed up the franchise tag to be able to use on saquon barkley and just generally gave them more options so you know i, I think they've overpaid and, and been a little bit too uh keen to throw an extension towards daniel jones without quite knowing what he is long term but i at least understand the reasons they did it in terms of valuing the flexibility and the the availability of the franchise tag once you go that route with jones yeah and like you said they, they can hold on to barkley and it isn't an onerous deal either where they can't get out after a couple years right. if they have to um but yeah uh now let's get into jones specifically first i want to start here because I think a lot of the progress Daniel Jones made this year had a lot to do with him as a runner. And I think we kind of touched on this at the combine, right? I mean, he had 31 explosive runs last year. Um, it just And I know his number of first down rushes. He had more first down rushes, Sam, in this year than he had in his first three years of his career combined. And frankly, it wasn't that close. It was more than 10 more this year than he's had in previous years. So I think for me, and I'd like to take on this, I think the next step for him is okay, maybe we don't need to run him as much and we can do more in, with with throwing the football, especially on third downs when so many of those scrambles kind of turn third and medium, third and long at the first downs. You'd like to be able to do that throwing it rather than running it. Yeah, I mean, I think we're in this world right now in the NFL where coaches are getting this understanding of how high a floor you can set if your quarterback can run the ball. You know, yeah. and Justin Fields showed this last year and Jalen Hurts the, the previous couple of years and, you know, Lamar Jackson a few years before that. We're, we're seeing right now that if you have a quarterback that can do special things on the ground with the ball in his hands, it allows you to work on a lot of other things. It buys you time. It sets a really high floor. It's difficult to be terrible when you have that uh, skill set. But in order to get really good, you know, in order to be the turn into Josh Allen or Lamar Jackson or Jalen Hurts last year, in order to reach that level, you've got to get that development done as a passer. And that's where I think Daniel Jones is right now, where I don't think you necessarily want to scale back his rushing threat. I think he showed that, that is a really important part of his game, but it doesn't mean anything if you can't get him better as a passer. And as much as he looked a little bit better overall last year, and there were certain numbers that were definitely improvements, um, he still averaged less than seven yards per attempt. You know, he still only threw for uh, 15 touchdowns. He still only had seven big time throws, which for a guy of his arm talent is like an absurdly no, low number. So these are the things we need to get better next year. And if they don't take a significant leap forward, then, you know, they might be trapped in this world of of knowing that they have a solid quarterback, but not one that's going to take them where they need to go. Yeah, 100 percent. And and we'll, we'll get to the positives in a second. And I think that's cutting down on turnovers. But I think the question is, Sam, can you keep that turnover rate where it is? And if you look at either the turnover worthy play rate that you guys do a great job with over at PFF, it's kind of been consistent between 2.7 and 3% the last three years, which is kind of right in the middle of the league. It's a decent number. Right. It's fine, right? But if you're going to just be in the middle of the league and fine, you got to have a big time throw rate. And I've, I've talked to our listeners about the way you guys track big time throws of a rate higher than 1.4%. And it's not like he hasn't shown he can do it. He had a 5% big time throw rate in 2020. He had a 4% big time throw rate as a rookie. So it's in yeah. him. He can do it. And my guess is that in the goal of trying to cut down on the turnovers, they've tried to pull him back a little bit. 
Now I think, especially after this big contract, I think it's time to let him go, right? And say, if you throw a couple more interceptions, we'll live with that if we can get more of those explosive plays out of it. And I'm sure it was influenced by the decline in receiving talent that he had to work with. Yeah, you know, absolutely. That, that lack of receivers, the group fell off the cliff. He didn't have anybody to throw to. And I'm sure that sort of either was part of him being pulled into a shell or just exacerbated the problem. And the, I, I mean, I can't think of a decline in big time throw rate like that, where he's gone from 5%, which is high, to 1.4%, which is like off the charts low you know, the worst in the NFL by a distance. I can't think of another quarterback who's sort of collapsed in terms of how often he's going to make a big throw like that um, in his career. So it's definitely the thing they need to focus on. And receiving talent can only help. We saw, you know, Joe Burrow year one uh, didn't have a deep throw in his arsenal. Like he couldn't hit a deep ball. And he was incredible at that in college. And in, in year one as a rookie, we were sort of asking, how come Joe Burrow can't complete a deep pass? And then you bring Jamar Chase into the equation, and all of a sudden, there's Joe Burrow again. He's one of the better deep throwers in the NFL. So uh, there, I'm sure, is a very tight correlation between the lack of receiving talent Daniel Jones has had to work with and those big plays just disappearing from his skill set or from his tape. Uh, but that is something that has to change this year. And you know, even if he doesn't have an elite wide receiver, I think that they've improved the group enough that they're going to need to see more of those plays from him. And he's going to need to just put some faith in the guys that he does have, even if they're still not, you know, where you would want a wide receiver group to be. Yeah, And even beyond the deep throw, Sam, something we've talked about is just being more aggressive, I think, in the middle of the field in those intermediate areas. I think Darren Waller will help that a lot. A couple other the advanced right. stats that you guys carry along, which I think are, are very handy in this situation. You know, he had the lowest percentage of his yards coming through the air this past year, under 50%. He's been 54% or higher in all of his other three years. His average depth of target, right, is just 6.6, .6, which is much lower. He was over eight the first two years of his career. And is short of the sticks percentage. Fifty, Almost 57% of his passes have, have gone short of the first down marker, which is 3% lower than what he was the two years prior. So I think as much as it is explosive plays, and that's essential, the Giants did not have enough of those last year. I think just attacking those intermediate levels of the field and just feeling comfortable going into some short areas and, and some tight areas in coverage where, where maybe the last couple of years he wasn't, to your point, because of the receivers that they had. Yeah, and these are things that are not necessarily inherent in, you know, Brian Dayball offense, which, you know, people might think. Dayball is very good at scheming guys open. He's very good at maximizing some of these underneath throws. But Josh Allen averaged over nine yards uh, in, in each of his last few seasons um, in, in a Brian Dayball offense. This is not a system that is going to force you into having a really low average depth of target and sh throwing everything short of the sticks and, you know, taking that kind of conservative looking statistical profile there are offenses out there that would do that but i don't think day balls is one of them so what we are seeing is something that is driven by either daniel jones or a personnel issue as opposed to a scheme that's boxing him into this world of being too conservative yeah and i think it's something that that that, that they're gonna have to figure out but i think the good news though sam and we talked about it the turnover rate's fine like this whole thing that daniel jones is sure. the turnover machine that's just frankly not true anymore no, I mean, you're right. It's it's middle of the pack, right? It's it's not an incredibly low number. He's not one of the most risk-averse quarterbacks in the NFL, which, to be fair, 
you might want him to skew in that direction a little bit more given the very low average yep. at the target and the fact that all these passes are short of the stick. So it probably is higher than it should be for a guy that's that's got his kind of profile in terms of uh, target map. But it's not egregious. It's not extremely high if his turn if his big time throw rate jumped into the middle of the pack uh, as well, it would be a non-factor. Yeah, one quick one on the defense before we get to kind of big picture NFC East stuff here, Sam. You know, Wing Warndale system's unique. I think this is going to be a real test this year. You know, you go from playing the AFC South where the Giants went four and zero last year to playing the AFC East, and those are very different divisions with very different sets of quarterbacks and offenses. And I think how the Giants can adjust to playing just a, a tougher schedule overall in terms of the offenses you're facing, I think is is going to be really telling in terms of how they've gone about improving this defense. You know, they added Bobby Okereke. They need to improve their run defense. The Eagles went for over 200 on them twice last year. I know running is right. not that important, but it is when you give up like 250 in a game to the Eagles. It's kind of hard to win those. And, you know, you had Deontay Banks, the, the rookie corner. You hope your two young pass rushers get a little bit better. But just your overall thoughts on Wink and, and kind of what the challenges are going to be this year and, and moving forward with him at the helm on defense. Yeah, I mean, I last year it was kind of amazing at times the the degree to which he would stick to that aggressive, you know, blitz-happy defense with the players that he had on the back end. You know, normally if you're left with a bunch of guys that you don't think can hold up particularly well one-on-one -on -one coverage, you're going to dial back that aggressiveness. You're going to try and insulate those guys from the the kind of island coverage that you would be exposing them to. And the Giants never did that. They didn't. I don't care who we have on the back end. This is the defense. We're going to play aggressive and we're going to go after them. And by the way, now, the amazing this thing year, is, Sam, they didn't give up that many big plays. Yeah, no. And it's this isn't just a Giants thing. It worked in Baltimore as well. They got decimated by injuries a few times. And Wink stays with what he does. He doesn't dial it back. He doesn't go into a shell when, when those injuries strike. But this year, I think they should be better equipped with the players, with the personnel that they have on the back end. I think they, they should have a much better ability to to let those guys go and play on an island and have you know really good results off the back of it Deontay Banks I think is a perfect corner for this system rookie corners it's always difficult for those guys to hit the ground running and play really well right away Sauce Gardner accepted so you know maybe next year isn't the year we get to see the the real um dividends from that but ultimately I think he'll prove to be a perfect player for the system um, but, but the risk is you're facing a, a dramatically better slate of pass offenses. So it's going to be tough for them to replicate what they did last year. All right. NFC East. I'm going to take Philadelphia out of the, the, the question here. <laughs> what do you think that, I mean, they're just so darn good. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know what else we could say about them, but what do you think the chances are? They close in on Dallas a little bit here, because I think it's hard to argue last year. Dallas still wasn't a tier above them, right? Can they at least close that distance this year? and be more competitive with Dallas? Um, I think they can. I mean, you know, we, we've expected Dallas to be really good for years, um, and they it always sort of unravels a little bit for them. Um, I, I don't know that they had one of the best off-seasons in the world. I like a couple of the moves they've made, the, the uh, veteran moves in particular, bringing in Stephon Gilmore, Brandon Cooks. Those are moves that should make an impact year one. Um, Cooks is always good. doesn't matter who he plays for, what offense. Um, and in particular, they don't need him to be a number one. They've already got C.D. Lamb. Cooks can just take the attention off him. That should be really good for that offense. Gilmore showed last year he's still got juice. He can still play and now doesn't have to be a number one corner. You know, he can be a secondary guy to Trayvon Diggs. So I think Dallas should be good. It's a really good roster top to bottom. Um, we'll see what changes are going to come from 
Kellen Moore leaving and, and Mike McCarthy kind of taking over. And if that makes a better, worse, or or stays the same. Um, Lots of really, slant flat, Sam. Lots of slant flat. Yeah. <laughs> but it's really going to come down to the Giants, I think, more than Dallas. The Cowboys are probably going to stay more or less where they were. And then we get to see whether the Giants' moves have made them better or just allowed them to tread water, you know, relative to their last season's kind of overachieving. All right, before we wrap up, NFC in general, right? You got seven playoff teams. You have the four division winners. I think we both think Dallas is going to be in. So you got five teams there. Every year, about half the playoff teams in the NFL change. It's very tough to kind of hang in there. So how do you compare the Giants in that second tier of teams after the ones we just discussed? Detroit, Seattle. I don't know what you think about Green Bay with Jordan Love. I don't know what the NFC South is going to look like. Who's winning that division? I have no idea. So where do you think they kind of stand with that next group trying to vie for those other wild card spots? Yeah, I mean, once you get past the first couple of teams in the NFC, I think it's a it's total open season. Like anybody can emerge from that pack and either be good or terrible. You know, you could see almost any of that second group of teams have a have an awful year and be nowhere near playoff contention, or you could see them ending up as the number four seed and and you know being as good as anybody record wise. So I think the Giants are absolutely in that mix, but they're also one of the most obvious teams for that. You know. In order for a bunch of new teams to come into the playoffs, a bunch are going to slip out. So the Giants, Minnesota are another one of those obvious teams for prime for regression. Um, so I I think they're absolutely in the mix and they could easily repeat last year and, and do the same thing. But they would also be one of the first teams you would list in terms of a, a vulnerable playoff team from last year who could easily you know, slip out of the playoffs this season for one of these surprise teams. Who's your favorite NFC East team or NFC team in general, not East specifically, kind of in that mix beyond those top teams we talked about that you think could really take a step forward this year? They're one or two teams, however you want to approach it. Yeah, I mean, I think Detroit is the obvious one. You know, they were improving at the end of last season. I really like their offseason. I think they've done a really good job, even if you want to, you know, quibble about the the first round running back Jameer Gibbs at number 12. Like, I, I like overall the players that they brought in. I think they're A, good players, and B, can actually make early impacts, you know, which aren't always uh, things that go hand in hand. And then their free agency, I think they patch a lot of holes as well. So I think the Lions are moving in the right direction and were right on the precipice last year anyway. And now, you know, Rodgers isn't in the NFC North anymore. Minnesota might not be any better or could be significantly worse than a year ago. The Lions could easily end up winning that division and being, you know, one of the favorites in the NFC. All right, final question. This is from my cohort who always yells at me. I don't understand how they track big-time throws. What, a, what does a big-time throw mean? So I'm going to ask you, Sam. We talked about big-time throws at Daniel Jones. What makes a throw a big-time throw when you guys do your gradings and you do your tracking? Yeah, it's it's no one thing. So generally, you know, throws deeper downfield are, are going to be more likely to be big-time throws, but it isn't simply a, a distance thing. It's They're the highest-graded throws PFF makes, and the, the PFF grading scale is generally – um, starts off at zero, which is average expected. And then anything above zero gets graded positively. Anything below zero gets graded negatively. So it's essentially a throw relative to expectation. You know, did you make uh, a more difficult, more advanced throw than simply dropping the ball off to a running back on a screen, which effectively you or I could achieve, right? right. Um, and distance is a big part of that. Uh, the, the coverage is going to be a big part of that how tight was the coverage how tight was the window he was aiming at did it pick up a first down did it score a touchdown you know what were the results above and beyond what you would expect as well so 
The answer is there's no easy answer to that, but you know, generally speaking, the degree of difficulty and the degree of um, positive return, positive results in that play are going to push the grade higher. All right, Sam, tell the folks where they can find you, anything you've coming out on PFF, the podcast, everything you're doing, tell everybody about it. Yeah, the PFF NFL podcast, myself and Steve, you can find that anywhere you get your podcasts uh, or our YouTube channel. That's where all our stuff is. I got to admit, I did not get through the full two hours of the expansion draft. <laughs> Dude, that, that was only show one. There was a second part. That no, came I know. Way I, had, I have it in my queue with the draft. So it, it was fun. And I, you guys enjoyed. You know, a guy I liked in the draft in like 2016 that hasn't played well at all, but I'm going to pick him anyway. Oh, yeah. that guy. It was uh, slim pickings with the actual players that were exposed in the expansion draft. So it got down to pretty thin reasons for signing people pretty quickly. Absolutely. Anyway, guys, go check it out. The PFF NFL podcast. It is excellent. Uh, Sam, Steve, who's been on the show before. Trevor chips in as well over the course of the year. Uh, Sam, good stuff, man. Enjoy your offseason. I know we got to kind of recharge our batteries here for the season. Please do so, and we'll talk to you down the road, bud. You too. Take it easy. Thanks for Sam having Monson, me. PFF, thanks for joining us on the John Soto Podcast. We'll see you next time. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A Redwood Forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.